selfish prudence is too often allowed to come between duty and human life. Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpliffe. Hello, witches, women, and other magical listeners. I'm Hannah, the bipolar bisexual host of this bi-weekly podcast of Witches and Women. Of Witches and Women is a Her Story podcast in which I explore the lives and histories of women forgotten, ignored, and misrepresented. This season of the podcast will include interviews with amazing women in medicine today, as well as the stories of women who made medicine in the beginning and who have improved it along the way. Women healers have historically been some of the first to be labeled as witches, and the first to be oppressed, tortured, killed, and used for their knowledge by men in power. This season, we are honoring our magical legacy as caregivers, life bringers, and healers, and embracing our history through witchcraft, medicine, and empowerment. Be sure you and your coven are subscribed to the pod on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify, and connect with your sisters through the Of Witches and Women Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, or Facebook. If you haven't visited the website yet, go to witchesandwomen.com to subscribe to the Oracle newsletter, explore the magical artwork in the Grimoire Gallery, listen to and source check episodes in the Lamia Library, and buy Wicked merch in the shop. I promise I'm actually going to start up the Oracle again this month, so add your email ASAP. Thanks for patiently waiting on me and checking in on me during my two-month break, twice as long as I had originally planned, but hey, Mental health doesn't exist on my timetable, unfortunately. So much has happened since our last episode. The orange one has been impeached again, kicked out of office, tried to incite Civil War 2.0, and is currently hiding in my current home state of Florida. Hopefully we ship him to a New York state prison soon, though. In better news, Kamala Harris is our new amazing VP. We finally have pets back in the White House. Vaccines are beginning to roll out worldwide and a bunch of crazy white terrorists are being rounded up and arrested by the FBI thanks to social media and their own stupidity. My husband has started his thesis and his own podcast, proving that we really are millennials, and I have started and stopped and started and stopped and started and stopped working on this beautiful disaster many times. I've decided to switch up the release date, so now episodes will come out Mondays, so they are more available during morning commutes during the week, and I have weekends to finish episodes so I don't feel so much pressure and stress during the work week. Most importantly, I'm also debating rewatching Bridgerton and the chilling adventures of Sabrina. Is it too soon? I don't know, is it ever too soon? I don't think so. And I'm looking for other shows to binge watch. So if you have something with a ton of seasons, send me suggestions. I watch them all. This season of the Of Witches and Women podcast is sponsored by Lua Ray Clothing. Lua Ray Clothing is a women-owned and operated small business. Check out their online boutique stocked with high-quality women's clothing that is flattering, comfortable, current, and inclusive by visiting luarae.com. That's L-U-A-R-A-E dot com today. When you shop their seasonal collection, use the promo code WITCHES15 at checkout for that sweet 15% discount. If you see something you love, order now because their collections sell out quickly and you, my lucky witches, get that discount. Today I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Denise Asafu-Adji who grew up in New York in the Bronx. 
She is of Ghanaian heritage and much of her extended family still resides in Ghana. Dr. Denise is a graduate of Carnegie Mellon, University of Michigan Medical School, and Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Asafu Aji completed her urology residency program at Columbia University Irving Medical Center and was the first black woman to complete the program there in June of 2020. In addition to her medical work, Denise is interested in broadening policies regarding public health care, including access and equity in the system. Medical doctor and master of public health, Denise currently works in the teaching hospital at UCLA, completing a prestigious fellowship in sexual medicine and male fertility. And she is a board member of the Alliance of Black Women Physicians. Denise, medical school is such a daunting area for so many of us. It's mm -hmm. totally just unaffordable from like the layman student point of view. It's lots of hard work. It's lots of study. And then when you graduate, there's even more hard work and studying left to do with residency and everything. So how did you decide that medical school was the right choice for you? And who and what helped you in that? Right. Um, you know, I think from a very young age, um, I was really interested in medicine. You know, my uh, mom was a nurse, and so I really had a lot of early exposures to kind of the hospital environment. But I knew I liked people. I knew I liked the idea of really being able to help manage people's health to, you know, just get them to be able to do other things in life. You know, if you're not healthy, there's a lot of other things that you can't do. And so I think when people's health is at least in a pretty good state, they're not only productive citizens, but you know, they can also pursue other things in their life. So I think as time went on and as I saw, you know, okay, I like people, I like science and, you know, like very early on that seemed to kind of be the natural fit. And then when I went to college, um, you know, I definitely made sure that I shadowed different physicians because I think, you know, sometimes when you're younger, you kind of have the this glamorous idea of what physicians are without really knowing what the day-to-day -day is. So sure. I very intentional about, um, you know, shadowing opportunities where I could see like what happens in a hospital or what do doctors really do on a regular basis. And so I did that throughout college and that kind of further reinforced like, okay, I like this and this is, you know, what I want to do. So I think even though it was this childhood dream of mine, I think very much so. I also made sure to kind of match that up with kind of a hands-on experience so that I knew I was making a truly, you know, informed decision. So that's really how I came upon medical school. And, um, you know, I kind of knew that there really weren't any other major professions per se that really drew me um, like medicine did. So I knew that that's how, that's how I knew it was the best path for me. Awesome. And then you are currently doing um, a study on fertility, male fertility. Mm -hmm. And so what drew you to that field, like to urology as a path? Because there are so many different areas of medicine and they're all so important. So how did you pick one? <laughs> Right, right. Well, you know, I mean, I think urology was a combination of things. Um, you know, when I went to medical school, I wasn't thinking about any surgical specialty whatsoever. I was actually pretty interested in primary care, uh, pediatrics specifically, because I love children. And uh, in medical school, I kind of unexpectedly <laughs> fell in love with surgery. And um, I think once I knew, okay, I'm going to go the surgical route, 
Um, I think deciding on urology was a combination of things. It's one, you know, a specialty that tends to be, you know, even more male dominated than some of the other um, surgical specialties or other mm -hmm. medical specialties. But we deal so much with sensitive quality of life issues that a lot of people either don't really know who to go to or who to talk to. So, you know, we deal with the genitourinary tract. So urination issues, you know, and I think those are things that can be quite embarrassing for some people. And it's like, we can really, you know, help to diagnose, work up, whatever, and really help people to feel like, wow, I have my life back because I'm not running to the bathroom every 30 minutes or, Mm -hmm. you know, issues pertaining to, you know, like a kidney stone, you know, kidney stones are they're super common, but they can be so debilitating for people. So I think for me, there was such a nice range of medical issues that we deal with that I think other people are kind of like, well, who deals with that? And um, I think we're at a nice place where um, there's also a lot of different technologies in urology that I think makes it just more versatile than other specialties. We use the robot, we have different, you know, tools mm -hmm. that are more for endourology. We work with devices. So I, I really love the versatility of urology as well as the different kind of medical issues we deal with. I came upon, um, so my current specialty, andrology is kind of a blanket term for, um, you know, male infertility, sexual dysfunction, really anything pertaining to kind of male sexual health. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought that was important just because one, I am residency, I love the patients that I saw that had these issues, but I also recognize like fertility, for example, huge um, social issues and um, not only the United States, but even around the world, you know, being from Ghana, Definitely. fertility is a huge social, you know, issue. And unfortunately, we are, I think only maybe now starting to get away from the dialogue that it's a female problem, right? So mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, men at least 50% of the time contribute something to that issue. It's almost unheard of or just not even discussed in, you know, a lot of parts of the world. So I think thinking about really pushing the envelope in that field and, you know, really allowing people to have the conversation, I think is important for building families and just, you know, having honest dialogues about what women are causing and what men are causing. Right. And, um, you know, so I think that's something that was just like a big draw for me, just being able to really open up that area a little bit more for common understanding, because I still feel like it's something that we're surrounded all the time with it being a female issue, and it really isn't just like us. Mm -hmm. And um, on the sexual dysfunction side, um, you know, sexual dysfunction impacts, I mean, on the male side, it's not just the men, it's their partners, whether their partners are male or female. So when you think about helping someone to kind of attain a better a quality of life there, you have multiple people that you're, you know, also now helping, you know, there's some patients that they may be dealing with other things, but having a good sex life is an important quality of life for a lot of people. Absolutely. And so I think when you can, you know, help people to also achieve a better status there, it really does change their self-confidence, um, you know, their interpersonal relationships. It's really impactful. And I think although it's not curing cancer per se, it is really something that's really life-changing for a lot of people. So um, those are the things that kind of drew me to that subspecialty. And I'm really happy to continue, you know, working on that. I love that. That's mm -hmm. very cool. Thanks for sharing. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, male fertility especially. I remember learning, you know, like in high school biology, that like it was um, the sperm that determined the sex of the baby and, mm -hmm. you know, like so much more about fertility than I'd known before, which is not much. 
and being so mad at all of history, like especially Henry VIII and like these kings all over Europe, just being so angry at their wives and punishing them for stuff that was their fault. (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. Get all of their uh, semen analysis and see who the real problem was. (laughs) Exactly. Now we know. It's a little too late, but hey, now we know. So, like I mentioned, I did a little bit of uh, online stalking, and right now we're, of course, in the middle of a pandemic, which means that you are, you know, front and center here, as well as we're in the middle of a really racially hateful climate. And I was delighted to see that you're um, an advocate in both areas, which I imagine has to be really tricky during this time because there's so much to do, um, and you're already so busy. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing to help people sort of stay active in both of these areas with, you know, the pandemic and health and masking and things like that. But then at the same time, we've got all this race-based violence and we have protests and discrimination. And so, ah, how do you put that all together? Right. Well, you know, I mean, I think especially being an African-American physician where, you know, you are kind of, you know, like me kind of being in different worlds simultaneously, so to speak, I think it is, you know, challenging to manage sometimes. So I think, you know, looking at the pandemic side, you know, as a, you know, urologist, I'm probably not from an intellectual standpoint as useful as an ICU physician emergency mm-hmm. medicine physician, you know, those are physicians who have really been frontline. And um, when I was in New York City, even as a resident, um, you know, even though we were kind of deployed to the emergency room setting and we were assisting in things that really weren't like truly our specialty, I think as all physicians, you know, things we can do are just, you know, following social distancing and masking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think just being socially responsible is the most effective way I can be impactful there because, um, you know, that's, you know, intensive care, um, you know, medicine is not my area of expertise. So I can't say that I'm, you know, necessarily the one that's like saving lives from a COVID standpoint, but I think lots of Americans and lots of people are actually saving lives on a daily basis just by wearing a mask and, you know, just following those protocols, you know, that are set in place, proven protocols to kind of prevent the spread of this um, virus. And mm-hmm. I think that that's as a physician the most important thing I can do is hold other people accountable hold myself accountable for you know adhering to you know some of these rules in place I think in regards to you know society and um, you know what we've kind of see what we've seen transpire in the last several years in terms of a lot of you know racially charged things I mean I think a lot of what we've seen it's not that it hasn't been happening i think just with social media cameras and everything i think it's just being documented more and mm-hmm. i do think that documentation does allow you know kind of all parties involved or everyone to kind of just see what's happening um you know i i think that everyone inherently has biases i think people are uncomfortable discussing those biases but i think you really can't make progress in any of these fields until everyone just admits like okay I have an inherent bias. You may have an inherent bias. How do we meet in the middle? 
as a physician, when you look at a lot of health disparities, a lot of health disparities are really, you know, social constructs, you know, whether it's, you know, people are unhealthy because they can't get to the hospital because the transportation line doesn't run in their neighborhood or they can't eat healthy because they don't have a Whole Foods in their area or someplace with, you know, with fresh produce. I mean, I think there's a lot of you know, so education, you know, there's so many other layers that contribute to things like health disparities. And I think now when we're seeing just, you know, other things that are being, you know, put on camera or, you know, being displayed, I think it's a confluence of issues, you know, Mm -hmm. including biases, generational mistrust, which is based off of actions and things that have happened so you know they're not coming from nowhere but i do i'm encouraged and i'm hopeful that people continue to just recognize that it is a true issue and whether you're in medicine law whatever field you're in it's you know biases you know racism prejudice you know racial discrimination gender discrimination like these are things that a lot of industries deal with i think within my my of medicine, um, you know, I think as physicians, what we can continue to do is, you know, have these conversations at the table so that people can really have actionable solutions to things Mm -hmm. that we had. And I think a lot of people are doing that now. I I definitely feel fortunate that at UCLA, I think, um, you know, talking about a lot of, you know, equity and health, you know, social justice issues, I think they've really taken it by the horns. And, um, you know, I think a lot of institutions are recognizing that, taking note and um, taking this seriously is Mm -hmm. not only better for everyone's psyche, but just your workforce in general. So I do feel like people are uh, making um, genuine efforts to, you know, work through this. And I hope that in five or 10 years, we find ourselves really in a, you know, a better place of peace and understanding. That's the goal. I I hope it doesn't take five or 10 more years, but I mean, it's already taken hundreds. So Mm-hmm. Uh, as like a medical student and now as a doctor on sort of a fundamental level what would be some of the most positive changes to racial inequality that you could see happening like at hospitals or at schools or just like a training maybe all doctors would attend like what's something that could actually make a difference tomorrow if they rolled it out Well, I think the first thing is just recruiting more, um, you know, more underserved populations into medicine. Mm -hmm. I think look at the population breakdown in the United States. It doesn't really match what we see in the physician workforce. Um, You know, women and minorities are still underserved um, or still minority populations within medicine. So I think Mm -hmm. definitely one easy thing to do is being intentional about who who we are recruiting into medical schools. And, um, you know, that process doesn't just start at your last year of college, but, um, you know, as someone, as someone who has been a product of pipeline programs starting from high school, you know, I did a program, I worked with NASA, I was working with the local university. I mean, I think there are a lot of programs that at least can set kids up on the right path to be prepared, you know, going into medicine, um, you know, I didn't have anyone in my immediate family who was like a doctor. So even though mm-hmm. my parents definitely finan- and my family were financially and emotionally supportive, there were very practical things that I needed to do in order to make that happen. So, you know, my advisors at Carnegie Mellon, um, you know, the ones that I also acquired in medical school, like these are all people 
that um, helped me along the way. And I just feel like mentorship is so important. So I think if I had to pin down two things that we could do now, as we're recruiting people to go into medical schools, we should really, really be more intentional about diversifying those classrooms mm-hmm. and really ensuring that we get more people, um, specifically more minorities and more women in there. And if we're not seeing that, we have to kind of you know go back to the drawing board in terms of, okay, well, that population comes from college students or what have you, why aren't we getting them? So I think drawing back to you know, different educational levels and figuring out how you can get people supported and mentored is really going to be key. Um, I, I really feel passionate about mentorship. So I don't think that um, even the most successful person doesn't get there on their own. And you mm-hmm. really need someone to help guide you along the way, whether it's giving pointers, um, you know, on various things. I think mentorship at every stage of your career is important and anyone could serve as a mentor, you know. Um, so I think if people are really looking to have an impact, every mentor doesn't need to be, you know, in the minority, you know, it doesn't have to be a minority or, you know, a woman, like it can still be, if you are an advocate and if you believe that this is important, it doesn't matter what race or gender you are, like you can still be a mentor, still be an advocate. And I think, mm-hmm. um, other things that you can do now if you do see injustices within whatever industry or world that you are in you should call them out and um, you should use the channels in place to appropriately call them out and see how you can make you know the change kind of in your corner so um, you know I, I again I don't purport that I I know the best way to make a giant sweeping change for the whole country but I can say hey within my clinic within my space I know I can make a difference there. And even the smallest impact is, um, you know, really, um, you know, is really huge. If -hmm. you kind of additive effect of everyone kind of being intentional and doing this in their, um, you know, in their different um, corners. That's so true. You know, everybody needs those mentorships, as you said, and for, you know, just like, some like more privileged white male, their mentor could be their dad and they're going to the country club, you know, at 15 and making those connections. And for everybody else, like it's a lot harder to get to that same point. Mm -hmm. But um, having, you know, those great school counselors you mentioned, wonderful supportive parents, that's such a huge start. So important. So, well, thank you so very much for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot. Abraham Lincoln is nominated to run for president. South Carolina is so offended by the idea that a president may tell them slavery is no longer acceptable that they secede before he's sworn into office. The Pony Express is founded, only to fail a year later. The British Empire formally returns the Mosquito Coast to the people of Nicaragua, from whom they stole it. The first U.S. dime novel is published, titled The Indian Wife of the White Hunter, Yeah, I'm not sure what to do with that one. The railroad reaches Kansas, and Harriet Tubman led her last Underground Railroad mission to New York. It was an age ago in terms of world powers, war, factions, technology, climate change, and corporate greed, but the 161 years since 1860 don't seem that long ago. Considering how little racism, sexism, and political discord has changed during that time, Rebecca Lee Crumpler, born Rebecca Davis and raised by her aunt, a nurse in Pennsylvania, 
became the first black female physician in the United States, starting med school in 1860. Dr. Crumpler, following in her aunt's footsteps, started out as a nurse, and after several years of nursing experience, some doctors took notice of her talent, and several wrote letters of recommendation for Rebecca, and she enrolled in and received a scholarship to the New England Female Medical College in 1860. After three years of coursework, a thesis, and rigorous exams, Rebecca was officially named a doctor of medicine. Her appointment came at the perfect time as the Civil War was coming to a gruesome end and thousands of soldiers required medical attention daily. Dr. Crumpler practiced first in Boston, then moved to Richmond, Virginia, a recent slave state and extremely racist place for Rebecca to advertise her credentials. But her skills were much needed as everyone gets sick and injured, but many white physicians refused to see black patients or overcharged them. Rebecca focused on helping black women and children, working with the Freedmen's Bureau, and acted in a missionary capacity, charging as little as possible in most cases. After working in Virginia for several years, she returned to Boston and worked out of Hyde Park and with renewed vigor continued to serve the black community in her area, in her area, treating children without requiring payment for her services. Rebecca must have faced enormous odds, racism, and dangers as a working black woman. She is an incredible example of strength and compassion. In 1883, she published her book of medical discourses which contains case notes from her years of medical practice. Her book emphasized the possibilities of prevention, and she hoped that many women would read it for their own education or to pursue medical careers. It is important to note that Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler was a trailblazer in her own right. It's also good to point out that the opportunities she deserves would not have been open to her if the white male doctors she worked for hadn't been willing to write her strong letters of recommendation. Rather than be afraid of her light, as is all too common, even today, the doctors Rebecca nursed under were mature enough to advocate for Rebecca to become a doctor herself. So, shout out to those doctors for being good allies, and huge shout out and thanks to Dr. Crumpler for leading the way as an amazing nurse, doctor, author, and black woman in a world that didn't accept her for any of those roles. May we do better and be better today. Witches Let's Talk Shop, specifically the Of Witches and Women Shop. If you haven't explored the website yet, you need to. Ofwitchesandwomen.com has show notes and sources for each episode in the Lamia Library. In the Grimoire Gallery, you'll find beautiful witchy artwork by contemporary artists and can link to their personal sites. And on every page of ofwitchesandwomen.com, you can sign up for the Oracle newsletter to receive obscure stories, artist biographies, and exclusive podcast content. And of course, please, please visit the shop. The Of Witches and Women podcast shop is full of merchandise, from stickers for the whole coven, to organable reusable cotton tote bags, to magic color changing mugs, to teas, to tanks, to aprons that will let all of your friends know your witchy little secret and more. When you visit the shop at the Of Witches and Women website, I get a little bit of that money so I can keep the podcast running. Plus, this season some of the proceeds from the Witches Made Medicine merchandise will be donated to a healthcare organization 
that we will choose together next summer. Some of you awesome witches have already purchased your Witches Made Medicine merch, and there's still time for the rest of you to go and check it out today. For our spell today, take a little tiny satchel or a little tiny um, old spice jar or something and put a sprinkle of salt and cloves in it and like a little sprig of rosemary and tuck it under your pillow for strength and good health. That's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, witches. Make sure you and the coven are subscribed to Witches and Women on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and write me a magical review on your podcast app so others can find and enjoy the show as well. Thank you for listening and sharing. You make my days each a little bit more magical as I have motivation to research and write these incredible stories. Be sure to connect to me in the pod on social media and look up of witchesandwomen.com for even more great content, podcast merchandise, and to subscribe to the Oracle. Stay fierce, witches, and I'll catch you next time. Of Witches and Women is brought to you by SHH Media, LLC.